and on as we read together Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, hear God's word. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we approach uh, what the Apostle uh, Paul likes to call uh, the mystery, not only here but in other places, we pray that you would give us humble hearts to hear what you have to say to the church, that we would not be wise in our own eyes or our own conceits, but that we would boast in the God of the Old and the New Testaments and listen carefully and humbly to what you have to say lest we be proud, as Paul warned in these passages and these verses that we would become. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ever since my days in seminary, I can't say that uh, before that I was even aware of this controversy, but um, at least since then, uh, when debating and discussing uh, the meaning of the hope that is prophesied in Romans chapter 11, uh, it seems that the great interest and the point of contention centers uh, upon verse 26, in which we find the words, and so all Israel shall be saved. That's what everybody wants to know. What did the Apostle Paul mean when he said those words? Well, I am interested in telling you what I believe he meant, but I also would like to do so in this manner, to suggest that there is no way to do so. That is, there is no way to understand what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, and so all Israel will be saved until we are clear about the arguments that led him to say that. In other words, we find this at the end, not only of the chapter, but of an argument. And so he is concluding. He's coming to a point of conclusion based upon what he has already said. Uh, and it is too often the case, uh, in my estimation, that we, well, we rush to that phrase before seeking to understand with clarity what it is that he, uh, the thought it is, I mean, that he is concluding by those words. Now, let me just say this, that uh, in doing so, in reviewing the arguments and then looking at the precise arguments that are found in these verses, that this will perhaps be uh, a more technical sermon uh, than I like uh, to ordinarily give. Nevertheless, uh, I think you will understand why. Uh, by the time we are done, we are looking at something that is debated even within our own circles. Uh, and like the Bereans, uh, we saw last Sunday night, we wish to, to search the scriptures and to find their true meaning. Let us do so together with this idea, Israel's salvation. 
I want to review four prior arguments from this chapter very briefly. And then we will find this as the conclusion of these four arguments. The first argument is an answer to the question, chapter 11, verse 1, has God cast away his people? The the first argument is God has not cast away his people, that is, the, the people of the Jews. And the first way that he proves that in verses 1 through uh, 10, 1 through 7 in particular, but he, he offers a little bit of scripture in verses 8 through 10, is to say that there is a remnant to this day. There's always been a remnant, so there is a remnant today in Paul's day. There's a remnant in our day, a remnant that is saved according to grace. Verses 1 and 5 and so on. Israel as a nation, he says in verse 7, has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have. That is, the elect remnant saved according to grace, even as the rest of the nation were blinded. Verse 7. No, God has not cast away his people. Number two, argument number two. Seeing, uh, coming now to verse 11, seeing that Israel as a nation has stumbled, that is the rest who were not saved, what then will become of them? And the answer which he gives in verse 12 is that as her stumble and fall led to Gentile inclusion in the church, so her fullness will lead to still greater blessing. Verse 12 Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For the present, Paul says she is cast off. But if this meant reconciling for the Gentile world, what will her acceptance mean? Verse 17, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It is clear From those verses, verses 12 and 15, which is where, by the way, I would begin the debate, not in verse 26, but in verses 12 and 15, it is clear that the Apostle Paul contemplates there Israel's future restoration or inclusion back into the church, which he calls her fullness in verse 12. Uh, In verse 15, he calls it her acceptance. That's something Paul says that's going to happen in the future. At present, it isn't true, but it's going to happen. Here's the third argument, which is found in verse 23. You remember, we just read in the reading of the law, verses 18 through 22. He's exhorting the church. But then he resumes his prophecy in verse 23. Argument three, Israel as the natural branch growing out of the root of Abraham has been cut off by unbelief. He does not seek to deny that. But he says, this does not preclude her being grafted back in as a nation. If she begins again to believe and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in. Again, God is able to do this, is he not? Argument four is found in the next verse, verse 24. Not only that, but given her former place in the tree, that is, as the natural branches springing from Abraham, it is natural and likely to suppose that God not only is able to do it, verse 23, but that God will do it, verse 24. It's not only possible, but it is probable or likely. After all, Paul says, if he grafted in those who had no place to begin with, Gentiles, Will he not much more do so with those who are natural branches? Verse 24, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? 
it should be clear by now what the whole drift of the argument is, even before we come to the conclusion. What the Apostle Paul is contemplating in a prophetic way is Israel's future, the future of this people. Israel's future place in the tree included in the people of God in her present form, the church. That is the dominant thought of chapter 11. In other words, the Apostle Paul is contemplating whether God is finished with his people of old and establishing the church composed largely of Gentiles as he moved on from the Jews. Is that the case or is it the case that despite their present state of apostasy and rejection. Despite that, God has some future purpose for her. And we cannot make our answer to that question depend upon our exposition solely of verses 25 and 26. We must rather see the arguments that led up to this as the conclusion of a more lengthy argument. And then you will see that Paul has already established Again, is the drift of the argument that he envisions the Jews being grafted in again to the tree. And when we do that, the meaning of the terms, especially in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved, uh, becomes more readily apparent to the reader and to the hearer. Of these two verses, verses 25 and 26. And so as we come to the conclusion of this argument uh, in verses 25 through 27, we begin with this as the first point, the mystery. What he is about to tell us is considered a mystery, he says, about which many are ignorant. He is still speaking to Gentiles. He says that in verse 13, I speak to you, you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. He's talking about Jews, but not to Jews, but to Gentiles. He's talking to Gentiles about the Jews. And he's saying, you're too ready to forget about them. Too many of you are ignorant about this mystery. Too many of you are wise in your own eyes. You would do far better to stop and to listen to what I'm about to tell you. Another way that I could put this is that as he's speaking to Gentiles, he's seeking to arrest our attention by this way of speaking. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. And it always helps with a bit of thunder in the background when you say that. (laughs) Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If you listen, it will spare you a great deal of trouble. And the trouble it will spare you is the very trouble that he outlined in verses 18 through 22. And that is the trouble of becoming proud. The trouble of becoming haughty. The trouble, especially in verse 18, of beginning to boast against the natural branches who were broken off. The mystery, he says, concerns Israel. Her future part in God's plan. But before we contemplate what the mystery is, we must understand the word itself. What is meant by the word mystery here? Many of you know that this is one of Paul's favorite words to express his conception of the church. That was revealed to him by the Father and by the Son. When describing the church 
uh, the true conception of the church as the people of God in the New Testament now is composed of Gentile and Jew together. He describes it as a mystery that has been revealed. In other words, he's saying, you know, this is really quite surprising in a way. It is surprising, especially to the Gentile mind. Who would have ever thought, even from the standpoint of the Old Testament scriptures, who would have ever thought that the church of the new covenant would be composed almost entirely of Gentiles? Not completely, but almost completely. And so, uh, so often then the mystery, he says, is this, that the Gentiles are not only included, but they compose the majority of the church. That really is quite surprising. And yet here's the mystery revealed. But don't forget this, that in describing the mystery which concerns the church, that God hasn't forgotten about the Jews. And so often in describing this mystery, he's talking about the way in which uh, and I hope to say that more on this next time. The Jew and the Gentile play off each other in the plan of God. And as the Jew has, or excuse me, as the Gentile has come to inherit the kingdom of God through Israel's downfall. Here's part of the mystery too. That's the mystery revealed. That's the church in her present form. But, but don't forget that the Jew also has a place in this. She has a part in the plan as well. And so that also comprises part of the mystery that Paul is revealing now to a church of uh, Christians who are largely composed of Gentiles who might have thought, you know, it seems very unlikely indeed that the Jews should ever have a part in any meaningful way in the church, just as the Jews once thought of the Gentiles. And so the mystery concerns Israel and the word itself conveys the idea of something previously unknown, something which is unexpected and yet which God has now disclosed through his apostle Paul. It isn't a mystery in the sense that it is difficult to understand. Christianity isn't a mystery religion in that sense. It's a mystery in the sense that it was hidden in the purpose of God for a time, but now it's been revealed unto us. It's something that seemed unlikely and yet which God has now disclosed to us that he's going to do. And here's the point. Now that God has disclosed it, it is no longer possible for us to plead ignorance. God has revealed the mystery to us. Let us no longer, Paul is saying, be wise in our own eyes. Let us begin to submit to God's revelation. A further thought perhaps conveyed in this idea, mystery, as John Murray says in his commentator, is that it draws attention to the greatness and the preciousness of the truth revealed here. As though he's not only saying, listen carefully to what I'm about to say, but he's adding, what I am saying is of the utmost importance to you. What is that truth revealed is the second point. And here is where things get a bit technical, and here's where all the debate is. Uh, and I hope not to overwhelm you by what I say, but I want to interact with the various arguments concerning these verses, in particular 25 through 26a. Let me read that again. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion 
beginning here, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. And I, I think I should correct what I just said, uh, verse 25b through 26a. That's what we're looking at in a detailed way. And we can just divide it like this. Beginning, here's what Paul wants us to know. First of all, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Here's the first phrase that is open to various interpretations. Now, the key phrase here concerns not the fact of blindness, but in part, the fact that the blindness is in part, the blindness which Israel sustains is in part. But what does that mean, the phrase in part? And there are three possible meanings. Uh, and, and just so you know, uh, I, I move from the least likely to the most likely, so that will be my procedure in each of these. So you already know the first one uh, I, don't, I don't like very much. Uh, some say it means a partial blindness has happened to Israel. In part means it's just a partial blindness, not a complete one. They're blinded as a people, but not entirely. Well, there isn't much to be said for this view, since Paul is clear that their blindness was very complete. Verse 10, their eyes were darkened so that they cannot see. Well, the partial blindness view doesn't seem to work. The second view is that in part means that only part of Israel is blind, which is more to commend it because Paul, Paul is drawing a distinction. He's saying some are blind, some are not. Granted. Except this view doesn't do justice to the distinction he makes because it isn't really just that some are blind and some aren't. The distinction actually that he's drawing is that most are blinded, but only a few aren't. And so seeing in part in this way does little justice to the overall argument. The final way of interpreting this phrase is to understand it to mean a temporary blindness. Israel as a people have been blinded, but the blindness will not last forever. There is a day coming when the blindness will end. She will be blinded until something else happens. And then she will see again. Then her eyes will be opened. And that way of viewing the phrase in part is justified. I hope you will agree with me. By the next phrase in the sentence, and so we turn to that. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Israel in part has been blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Again, a phrase that's open to various understandings. Uh, there, are, uh, there are two this time, not three. At the very least, I feel justified in my understanding of in part because Paul is pointing to some future event that will spell the end of Israel's blindness. When this event happens, she'll no longer be blind. She's blind in part until. Until what? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Well, how are we to understand this phrase? The fullness of the Gentiles. What does that mean? You see... That's a little surprising here, isn't it? We've been seeing uh, God's future plan for the Jews, but suddenly he speaks of something that he calls the fullness of the Gentiles. 
I confess, uh, as I see the unfolding argument, I did not expect it, and yet there it is. Now, what does it mean? Well, there's two views. Some argue for what I would call the trickle-in effect. All through the ages, the Gentiles will trickle into the church, and once uh, the full number of the Gentiles is complete, their fullness is achieved. And at that point, and not until that point, Israel will be blind, but when it is achieved, the blindness of the Jews will end. And the main reason I would say that that view makes little sense is because it does not agree with the earlier use of the term in verse 12, where Paul speaks of the fullness of Israel, the fullness uh, of Well, he just says their fullness, their fullness. But it's clear he's speaking of Israel. And my contention is, you may disagree, but my contention is that it must bear the same meaning here, since it is found in the same argument. What it meant for Israel, it must mean for the Gentiles. Now, go back to what he was saying in verse 12. There, Paul was looking for some future event when a great number of Jews would be saved at present. They are not saved. They've stumbled. They've fallen down. Uh, there, there is but a few that are saved, just a small remnant. But, but, but look here, Paul is saying, there's a day coming when the few will become a fullness. And so fullness there stands in contrast to few or remnant. It doesn't mean all in the sense of each and every one. It means many. It means a very great number of Jews are going to be saved. And so the contention of the Apostle Paul is that as the vast majority of Jews at his uh, day, and I think we would say in our day, stand outside of the church at present, and only a few are saved, there is a day coming when a great number will be saved, far beyond anything like a remnant. Again, a few will give way to a fullness. And I am saying that this same phrase with respect to the Gentiles must bear the same meaning. So that brings us to the second view. That it doesn't mean a trickling in over the ages. It means as those who are saved presently among the Gentiles are comparatively few, there is a day coming when there will be many, a vast multitude. If you just think of the church today, I think it would be easy to understand what he means when he speaks of the future fullness. It would be easy, let me put it like this, it would be easy to feel as Paul did or as Elijah did in his own day. Remember the earlier arguments. Elijah was saying, you know, Lord, and I I confess to you that I felt this way at times. Lord, I alone am left. That's actually what Elijah said. And Paul was saying, you know, I could have felt that way. There are so Few who are saved. Even if you compare the Gentiles to the Jews and you say the church is largely composed of Gentiles. I grant that. Compared to the Jews who are saved, we're we're a multitude. But compared to the Gentiles in mass, we are but very few. We are clearly living in the days of the remnant. I hardly think any would disagree with this. So that, again, as Elijah said in his day, and as uh, Paul might have said in his day, we could say on our own, looking at the nation around us and say, Lord, are there any who are saved? There are so few. A remnant at most. 
But Paul is saying to this remnant of Gentile believers, there is a fullness that awaits us. A day is coming when many will be saved, not a few, but a fullness. You see, it's the same thing that he spoke about Israel. Today, but a few, a small number, but there is a day coming when many, many will be saved. So likewise, the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in points to some future revival in which many, many Gentiles are saved and added to the church. According to the Puritans, Matthew, Matthew Poole, for example, in his commentary, this event, the fullness of the Gentiles, would be even greater than what was known in the days of Acts, when the Gentiles were pouring into the church. I won't say, uh, I won't go that far. I won't say that I know that much. I only say that some have understood it that way. But I will say that Paul is pointing to some future event in which a great and a vast number of Gentiles are saved. And on that day, they will no longer appear to be this small number, this present remnant. There will be this great, this tremendous, this mighty revival. Likened to the days of Pentecost, when the Gentiles will pour into the church. There will be this vast increase, this vast addition to the church. Not of Jews, but of Gentiles. Now listen. This is the point Paul is making because he's not talking about Gentiles. He's talking about Jews. He is saying when that day comes. Israel's blindness will end. At that point, she will be so provoked to jealousy. It will appear to her so overwhelmingly and abundantly clear that God has favored the Gentiles, even as he has rejected the Jews. It will become clear to her on that day in an unmistakable way that the Gentiles are in even as she is out. She will be provoked to jealousy. And then at last she will see. God, verse 11, they have stumbled not that they should fall, but that through their fall to provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. And nowhere will that appear more clearly than when the fullness of. Of the Gentiles come in. She will clearly see her error. She will begin to believe. And her blindness. Her present blindness. Will end. And so. All Israel. Will be saved. Finally. We have come to that phrase. But it should be clear. We were in no rush to get there. But I think we are prepared To understand it. This is the key expression. Everyone wants to debate it. What does it mean? Well, so often and so becomes the debate. Though you'll see I have no interest in debating that at all. It either means in this way or at this time. I see little to be gained by arguing either way. My greater interest is this. What does he mean by all Israel? All Israel. This is the key phrase. If all Israel is going to be saved, what does all Israel mean? And again, there are three views. The first view uh, is that which you would find uh, in Ritterboss. I have a little article by Ritterboss. It was what I was taught in seminary. I'd be happy to give it to you. I don't agree with Ritterboss, but I accept it as uh, one of the many reformed views. 
It could mean this, Israel assuming her true form, now is consisting of Jew and Gentile. As the fullness of the Gentiles come in, so now all Israel is saved. Because, you see, Gentiles now are, Gentiles are now included in Israel. But the trouble here, as so many have been uh, apt to point out, and I'll point it out to you now, is that that suddenly, in the course of this argument, makes the word Israel now bear a meaning it never once bore in the whole of the argument. It was always Israel in contrast to Gentiles. But suddenly now it means something that it never once meant. And so I reject that view along with many others. The second uh, view is that, and this is very similar to the first, it could mean the sum total of elect Jews from every age. The trickle-in view, not with respect to the Gentiles, but with respect to the Jews. As the Jews come in through the ages, uh, suddenly they reach their full number and you have all, all Israel, all true Israel. That is, the elect... or we could call it the spiritual view. All Israel means elect Israel or spiritual Israel. Well, the trouble with this view is that it's already been said earlier, and it contributes nothing to the argument. It was argued in chapter 9. It was argued in the beginning of chapter 11. We hardly need, at this grand point of conclusion, when Paul is contemplating the future of Israel, As a people who have been rejected, we hardly need at this point to be told that elect Jews will be saved. There's really no mystery here, if I could put it that way. There's no sense of surprise. The disclosure of something that was previously unknown. And so we must seek an interpretation that is consistent with all that has been said. And that leads us now to the third view and what I would consider the right view. The view which was held by the Puritans and expressed in this book the Puritan hope, and it is the view which is falling out of favor and yet which I am still contending for. And it is the view that all Israel means the same thing that was contemplated in verse 7 and verse 12 and verse 15 and so on. It concerns the rest, the fullness and so on. All doesn't, let me say again, it doesn't mean each and every one. It means what the fullness did. It means a great many. It means a vast number. As the Jews who are saved today are relatively few compared to the number of Jews in the world and the Gentiles in the church. A day is coming, Paul says, when that will change. Her blindness as a people and as a nation will will end and she will be saved, which will be to the enrichment of the entire worldwide church. We need to look at one last phrase, and that is the phrase saved. All Israel will be saved. It is very important that we realize that what the Apostle Paul is contemplating here is not Israel's future restoration to the land of Palestine. It is not Israel's future restoration Or constitution as a nation. There isn't a word about that here. Not about the land. Not about the temple. Not about the old covenant. Not about her political or national form. Not a word about that. What he is saying. 
is that a day is coming when the Jewish people, wherever they may be, are going to be saved. He is contemplating not Israel, Israel's future restoration to the land, but Israel's future salvation, her place in the church. Their eyes are going to be opened, Paul is saying. They're going to, be, they're going to believe. They're going to be baptized and they're going to come into the church. And when that happens, let us be clear that their salvation will look no different than ours. Let us not forget what he said a little earlier in chapter 10. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Forever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes on to say, you know, the Jews don't believe this. And so they're not saved. But the amazing thing that I am setting before you, the the disclosure of the mystery, is that there is a day coming when they will call upon him. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will weep. And they will repent. And they will believe. And in believing they shall be saved, even as you were saved. Not in such a way that the Jews coming in will suddenly be a separate class of believers. No. As soon as they come in, then it will appear to them and to us. There's no distinction whatsoever. Just as God saved us, so he saved them. Certainly, I am not saying that their salvation would look any different from ours. Look at it like this, Paul is saying. That their salvation as as ours will come entirely at the hand of God. It will not be their own doing, it will be God's doing. Even as he blinded them, so he will open their eyes. He will be unto them a deliverer, Paul says, to use the language of the prophets. Now we're going beyond verse 26a to verse 26b. God will be their deliverer. He will save them. Not they themselves, but he will do it. He will remember his covenant with his people of old and their father Abraham. And so he will turn them away from their present state of ungodliness. And he will take away their sins. The gospel will become to them at long last good news. Do you remember Peter preaching to the Jews at Pentecost? He's saying, you're the ones who handed him over to be killed. The very author of life, the son of God, your own Messiah. But do you, but do you realize That in response, those Jews cried out, what must we do? And many of them came to see their error and to repent and believe, even as they were hard-hearted all through the gospel. Suddenly they were believing on the day of Pentecost. The sad fact is from that point on, we see generally not acceptance, but rejection. There's a snapshot there, however, at Pentecost of what Paul is predicting. As the Jews are condemned by the preaching, so they become convicted and they believe. And instead of a small number, it becomes a vast multitude. That, beloved, is the mystery revealed. Who would have expected it? That that God would do such a thing. And yet Paul is saying here that he's going to do it. History is set in motion and nothing can stand in the way of his great purpose. He hasn't forgotten the Jews. He hasn't forsaken them entirely. He's going to save them. It's not going to happen right away. For now we must be content if only some are saved, as he says in verse 14. But the day is coming when some will give way to all. And please understand the distinction. All meaning many or a vast number. Well, I have a few more things to say. 
I want to say something about the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Jews, which he quotes here. In the second part of verse 26 and verse 27. And so often quoted in the New Testament. To quote Ian Murray in the Puritan Hope, he says, The way Paul employs these texts is proof that the full scope of Old Testament prophecy has not yet been realized in history. This is of major significance. And after noting how the texts he quotes have been used to state in the New Testament the present fulfillment of what they predicted, he goes on to say, Paul's use of the same prophets in Romans 11, 26, and 27 now show that the fulfillment was only initial and by no means exhaustive. A larger fulfillment still awaits the church. Here's what, here's what Paul is pointing to here and what Murray is uh, elucidating for us. The point is that, that these very verses, uh, these prophecies are so often used to point to the church's present possession, the present fulfillment of what was prophesied to Israel in the Old Covenant. And while that is true, Murray is saying, by what Paul does here, using those same prophecies, a larger fulfillment still awaits the church. The church presently enjoys the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament. That is true. But Israel herself still awaits her share in those same promises. That doesn't make us dispensationalists, by the way, when we say that. I think that's why Reformed people get so nervous today with this kind of language. Do you know what it does when we say that? I don't know if this moves you, but it moves me. It places us in the long line of the Reformed tradition. It's, it places us alongside the Puritans. It places us alongside Jonathan Edwards and so many others. If you want a survey of that, I encourage you to read the Puritan hope. It makes us Reformed believers through and through. And that's what I want to be, by the way. This is something... Coming back to what the Apostle Paul says here. And here's where the exhortation comes in. This is something about which we should not be ignorant. In other words, you say, you know, I'm not sure about that. Maybe I'll consider it another day. No, that's very dangerous, Paul is saying. You need to know this. You really do. This is something that should have a place in your system of theology. It doesn't have to have the most prominent place, but it has to have a place This is the mystery that God has disclosed to you. Not just that the Gentiles now have a share in the tree, but one day the Jews will as well. Now as God has called the Jews, uh, or the Gentiles, excuse me, at Pentecost, so the day is coming when he will call the Jews and include them once more. Richard Sibbs, uh, as he says in the bruised reed, the faithful Jews rejoice to think of the calling of the Gentiles. And why should we not joy to think of the calling of the Jews? Let me add a few more closing thoughts very briefly. Do you not see and do you not say that salvation is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous to behold? Is it not marvelous to behold his great and mighty works? Do you know that Jesus said that in quoting the prophets of Israel's downfall in Matthew 21? But will it not make us praise him doubly so when he lifts up this people once more? Will it not make us say? It is the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous to behold. If this does not make you praise him, then you've missed the whole point. But the last thing I would say is the effect that this has, and again, if you read the Puritan Hope, you would see this, the the way that this informs our view of missions. Truly, this is the ultimate perspective of the Apostle Paul here, and it is the perspective which we must adopt, not a vain curiosity in prophecy, but an interest in 
missions. Was that not the interest of the apostle? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God, uh, to God, for Israel, is that they may be saved. Or as he states in verses 13 and 14, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and to save some of them. The apostles desire and the desire of these Puritans and their heirs who evangelized this nation and just about the whole world, by the way, their interest was to see the kingdom of God expand beyond its present form. Their interest was, if I could use the language here, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in and along the way provoking perhaps some Jews. But to see at the end of that process, the fullness of Israel coming in. They wish to see, in other words, many saved, many, many saved, even God's people of old. Is it your desire, beloved, to see the kingdom of God expand beyond its present form? Do you desire that many should be saved? And if that is your desire, well, then I say that there is nothing in all the world. And in all of scripture that so fills the heart of the believer with confidence that this will happen than what is promised to us here. And so let us take this to heart and begin to pray as Paul did. That Israel might be saved or as the Puritans did. They forget a main point of the church's glory who do not pray daily for the conversion of the Jews. Amen. And let us come to the table.